Welcome to Boiling Point. They're invisible and yet almost everywhere. PFAS are a group of man-made chemicals that are incredibly useful. They help making frying pans non-sticky and furniture to stay nice and shiny, just to name a few. But PFAS also has a dark side. They are incredibly resistant to breakdown and last in the environment for many years. They even made their way into the most remote of all areas, the Arctic. Our guest studies PFAS contamination in Arctic wildlife and what that means for polar bears, seals and whales, she will tell us in just a moment. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. I'm your host Kat and I'm chatting about PFAS or per and polyfluorinated substances today. My guest is the toxicologist Dr. Haley Ruti from the Norwegian Polar Institute in Tromsø. Haley has done multiple expeditions into the endless world of ice of the Arctic to learn about what threatens its wildlife. Thanks for being my guest on the show, Haley. Okay, thank you. Healy, just for our Australian audience, we're in summer at the moment and it's pretty nice and warm. So, but your world looks probably very different. Um, what does it look like? What do you see when you look out of your window right now in Tromsø? Well, I'm in, uh, at the opposite side of the globe. So uh, it's quite different here. It's um, minus 12 degrees and a lot of snow, the clear skies and the shining. Our dark period finished a month ago because for two months we do not see sun at all here in winter. It's nice winter day, good skin conditions. <laughs> I can imagine that, although I can't imagine not having sunlight for two months. That um, sounds intense for sure. Yeah, let's move on to your actual job. So you're a toxicologist. Um, what does it actually mean just in general to be an ex a toxicologist? What is your, yeah, I guess the description of what you deal with every day? So I do research on um, pollutants in um, in Arctic wildlife. I look at both of, uh, of our levels and trends of pollutants as well as their effects. Right. So one of the contaminants you study is PFAS, as I mentioned in the intro, which in long, uh, like the... Um, the full term is per and polyfluorinated substances, and I'm very glad I didn't stumble um, stumble when saying that. Please give us a brief overview for our audience who are not familiar with PFAS. What is PFAS? A PFAS is actually a huge group of compounds. This group contains over 3,000 chemicals which are or have been on the global market. And all PFAS are man-made chemicals. And they are made up of a chain of carbon, carbon atoms where fluorine atoms are linked. And this structure makes these chemicals very persistent. The reason, research and regulation have focused on mainly on PFOS, which stands for perfluorooctane sulfonate, as well as PFOA, the perfluorooctanoic acid. And these chemicals are regulated today at the global level. However, there's a wide range of other PFAS which are also of concern to the society and to the environment. What is, uh, first of all, what, um, what were or what still are PFAS used for? 
Uh, these chemicals are or have been used for a very wide variety of industrial and consumer application. There's a recent investigation which was published one and a half years ago that showed that, that there are more than 200 use categories uh, where, where um, over 1,400 individual PFAS have been used. And PFAS are used in almost all industry branches and in many consumer products. So in addition to the well-known applications such as textile impregnation, firefighting foam or cookware or electroplating, they have also been found in, for example, climbing ropes and guitar strings. So they are really everywhere. Yeah, wow. That's I did not know that either. Guitar strings and climbing ropes. That is crazy. What is the what is the function in this case? Why would um why would they put PFAS in there? Yeah, there are many different functions in, in PFAS, but but it's 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 a very persistent molecule, so so it has a lot to do with the resistance. Right. Yeah. And even in our everyday life, right? Like um, I learned recently food packaging, for example, when you order your your takeaway pizza, then often in the cardboard, um, there is PFAS to make the cardboard um, more resistant to um, grease stains. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and that's the uh, same reason why they are used a lot in textile textiles or cooking ware. So that um, uh, that the, the dirt doesn't of fat doesn't stick into those surfaces. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, yeah, you have already mentioned a little bit. They're very persistent. Can you tell us a little bit more? What's the problem with them? So so far, it sounds like they're really great invention, right? Really genius invention for humanity. Helps a lot in our daily life. But why are they not that great? On the other hand. Well, PFAS, they are emitted into the environment during production, use and disposal, and from landfills as well. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, so they are very persistent and they, they remain in the environment for a long time. And PFAS are really global pollutants as they are found all around in the world. So they are found in the Arctic and Antarctic, which are very remote regions. And they are transported to remote areas through air, ocean and river currents. And not all the thousands of PFAS in the market are so persistent. But the problem is that even though some PFAS may partially degrade in the environment, they will all ultimately transform into highly stable end products. And then the stable end products are the ones that are taken up into the food web and they accumulate over time in animals and end up at high concentrations in species that are on the top of the food web. Many PFAS are known to be toxic, so that is a reason why we should worry that they accumulate into wildlife as well as in humans. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. We will definitely um, get back to that um, in a little while. Let's first talk about your yeah your research area, which you said is the Arctic. When did researchers start looking for PFAS in such remote places like the Arctic? The first report on global distribution of PFOS, so the perfluorooxysulfonate, in wildlife was published a bit over twenty years ago in two thousand and one. 
And then in mid-2000, there were more reports on PFAS in wildlife from the Arctic. And these showed that the PFAS concentrations increased along the food chain, as well as they showed an increase over time. Yeah, right. So it's just... um. It makes sense that you say it's like everywhere by now, but it's just a bit crazy to imagine that it has made its way all the way to such a remote place like the Arctic, right? It's just, um, yeah, a bit hard to comprehend, really. So can you just um, sum up for us again? Um, how did PFAS get there to the Arctic? Like, it seems a really long way. Uh, the major air and ocean currents from the North America and, and from Europe, for example, they go northwards. So PFAS are transported with these air and ocean currents towards the Arctic from the industrial areas. And some precursors of the ones that we measured, for example, in polar bears, they are mainly transported by air currents, whereas our other PFAS are transported through ocean currents. Right. And um, yeah, as you said, you're specialized in testing Arctic wildlife for PFAS and for other chemicals. And those species are quite um, varied, right? So they include polar bears, beluga whales, walruses and other species. Um, how do the, these animals get exposed to, to PFAS? They all get exposed to PFAS through what they eat, so through their diet. And um, how does it get? How do PFAS get into the food web? Is that that the small creatures of plankton, so they take up PFAS from the seawater, and then when plankton is eaten by larger plankton or by fish, fish which are further eaten by seals and so on, so PFAS get more concentrated at each step of the food web. So we say that they biomagnify in the food web. Yeah, that and many. Yes. Sorry, you go. <laughs> Yeah, and many species at the top of the food web, such as seals, polar bears, so they're long-living species. So they have time to accumulate PFAS over their lifetime. And as these chemicals are very persistent in their body, they get rid of them very slowly and they, they have time to accumulate over time. Do you know, um, yeah, just 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 you, in case you know by heart, how long would um, like PFOS, for example, um, stay in a polar bear? Just just an estimate so we get an idea. A half-life in polar bears have not been studied or, or the time that they that they stay in the body, but it can be, as I remember, for example, for PFOS, so it can be hundreds of days in, in humans. Yeah, sure. But it's I guess that's just something I wanted to point out that those, this is one of the issues, right, that it stays in the body for so long, whereas there are many other pollutants which just basically pass through our body and they're eliminated and they might do a little bit of harm while they're passed through, but they don't stay, stick around for several, like 100 days or whatever, right? So I guess that's a very important difference um, with the PFAS. Yeah, so some pollutants just go through uh, where... Other ones like well PFAS and as well as uh, PCB, so they are very persistent. They stay in the body for a long time. Yeah, and um, that is brings me automatically to the next questions. A question: They they're in the body, and um, well, if they didn't do anything, I guess it wouldn't matter too much. But what are the consequences to the different species of wildlife that you study? Uh, so PFAS exposure may lead to many different adverse health impacts. And these compounds are known to be endocrine disruptors. 
which means that they can disturb the hormonal balance of the body. An altered metabolism, impaired liver functions, and reduced immune defense are also examples of adverse health effects related to PFAS exposure. It's very hard to know what the exact consequences of PFAS exposure in highly contaminated wildlife are. An example of wildlife with high PFAS exposure is polar bears from the Norwegian Arctic. The levels in the blood samples from these polar bears are similar to those reported in humans living at the proximity of a large PFAS manufacturing plant in China. Oh, wow. And these levels are about 100 times higher than in the general human population. PFAS in polar bears relies mostly on correlative and mechanistic studies. So we can't expose polar bears to PFAS and see what happens. So what we do is that we investigate whether the blood levels of PFAS are related to, for example, expression of different genes or blood values that are used as indicators for health status or to hormone concentrations. Can I, Hilly, I'm so sorry. Do you mind if I briefly interrupt just for um, just for the audience to uh, briefly sum it up and um, then Oh, you will get a chance to continue. I want to hear all of it for sure. Um, it's just um, uh, it's a really complex topic, so I want to break it down a little. So you're basically saying, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but you're basically saying that there are animals in the lab that can be tested on the consequences, say um, lab rats or mice or zebra fish, and you can test, you can expose those um, those animals to certain concentrations of PFAS and different different types as well. And then you can really de- st- study in detail what happens to these animals, right? But with like something like a polar bear in the wild. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So there can be um, experimental studies done in in lab animals like rats or mouse or, or zebra fish, but uh, but we can't do that on polar bears. So we can just take blood samples or fat biopsies and study them. Right. So you basically, yeah, you take those samples like blood or other samples and then you look at how, um, yeah, what are the differences, like what are the changes you see in, in those samples that are, might be caused by PFAS? Is that right? Yeah. So then we can relate the PFAS, PFAS levels in polar bears to the levels of hormones. We can check if the bears with high levels of PFAS, do they have uh, hormone levels that are higher than than the lower than than the animals with lower level of PFAS? Yeah, that makes sense. And um, you said earlier that uh, PFAS are considered endocrine disruptors. I feel like, um, yeah, most people might not be familiar with that. What does that actually mean in practice for a polar bear or a beluga whale? Yeah, so endocrine disruptor, mean, disruptor means that uh, that uh, these chemicals can disturb the hormone system of the body. And do you have an example for us? I mean, it doesn't sound nice, but um, what does it? What exactly does it do then? So, as mostly what we know on polar bears is is mostly based on these uh, correlated studies where we can relate uh, the PFAS concentrations to the um, hormone levels and when we see that they are related hormone levels are related to the PFAS exposure and then we 
also have information from mechanistic studies. So we have used the gene technology to establish some molecular models where we can study how very specific molecules are influenced by PFAS in polar bears. Yeah, and um, I just want to point out, you said this earlier, which I found quite mind-blowing, so I feel like it's really worth pointing out again. You said that the levels you found in some of the polar bears are as high as people who live right next to or very close to a um, plant that produces PFAS. Did I get that right? Yes, yes. And these levels are about 100 times higher than in general human population. Yeah, that is crazy. So that is all the bioaccumulation you mentioned before. Polar bears and other mammals are quite long-lived. So over the course of their life, they would eat lots of fish and seals that are all that all have their specific um, PFAS burdens, and they would accumulate that in their body. That is, um, yeah, that is crazy. Does that also mean when you say it, it disrupts their um, hormone system and their metabolism? Could it be, for example, a consequence that they have issues reproducing? So does it impact their reproduction? It's very hard to, to know what are the population level consequences or what are the consequences to survival or, or reproduction. There are so many other factors that can affect polar bears reproduction or, or survival. So, so it is very hard to say what is the actual effect to the contaminant exposure. It's very challenging in general to study pollutant effects in wildlife because we can't do do exposure studies like in rats where we give them pollutants and we see what happens. And, yeah. uh, and we have to rely to these so-called correlative studies where we see if the hormone levels increase or decrease with the increase in pollutant levels. Yeah, that that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, have you ever in your career as a toxicologist, have you ever thought like, oh, well, I've, it might be just easier and um, I would have an easier life if I just worked with mice and rats? No, it's nicer <laughs> to work on polar bears, I have to say. <laughs> that, that's the right answer, but I'm glad. Of course, of course mammals are are quite similar. So even if we are not mouse or rats, uh, we still have a lot of our genome, which is very similar to rats and mice. So, so what what are the effects in mammals also gives an indica uh, indication what are, the, what are the effects on another mammal. It's not the same, but at least it, it gives an indication that such effects may also occur in, in polar bears. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. And um, you also, in some of your studies, you looked at temporal trends of uh, PFAS burdens in the Arctic wildlife. So to see um, how how those um, ex how the exposure changes over time, what did you find there? So we have studied temporal trends of PFAS in, for example, polar bears and Arctic foxes from Svalbard. And here we can see that the concentrations or the temporal trends, they mostly follow the patterns of emissions. So, for example, PFOS emissions were strongly reduced in early, in early 2000 when the major producer 3M voluntarily stopped the production. And then in the polar bear time series, we can see at, that around 2003 to 2004, 
PFOS started to decline in polar bears and Arctic foxes. But then there are other PFOS, like the long-chain perfluoroalkyl acids, and they have been increasing in polar bears as they and their precursors have been used for a longer time. And we have also studied whether climate-related changes in polar bear diet, whether they affect PFAS exposure in polar bears. But what we see is that the exposure of uh, PFAS in polar bears is mainly driven by emissions of PFAS. Yeah, I guess just to give a brief background for our audience. So there are PFAS um, types or compounds that have been produced um, for a long time, since the 1950s, right? And mm. um, so they've been around for a long time. So they had a lot of time to be um, dispersed into the environment and to accumulate in the environment and in, in, in the animals. But then there are also newer um PFAS types that have only been around for a shorter time and I know that there are some types or to phrase it differently the PFAS producing companies they keep coming up with new types and compounds of PFAS right to um, say like oh look we have a new compound and um, we can use this now um, have you been looking at the fair the really recent ones so the new PFAS types as well Yeah, we have been doing screening studies. So, so we screen new compounds in the in samples of, of Arctic wildlife, and uh, we have screened a lot of new PFAS as well. And we can see some of the new PFAS in polar bears, but uh, but not many of them. Uh, but these screening studies they are very important because um, a global regulation of pollutants uh, requires that the pollutant is persistent, it's, uh, it bioaccumulates and biomagnifies and it's toxic. And if we detect a current used chemical in a polar bear from the Arctic, so it's already approved that the compound is persistent and it bioaccumulates over time and, and it magnifies in the food web. So it ends up to the top predators of the of the Arctic. Yeah, right. And the challenging the challenging part then is to to know if the compound is toxic or not. Right, and I guess this is um, this is probably not really up to you, but that would be determined in mouse, uh, mice, and rat studies to see if there's any toxicity. Yeah, it's done on mice and rat studies. Also, uh, there are many alternative methods and working on cells. Um, so the toxicity studies are a combination of uh, cell studies and also molecular modeling studies, then the mouse and rat studies, and then um, um, human, human studies, uh, like large epidemiological studies where you can relate pollutant concentrations to health parameters in thousands of, of humans. In polar bear research, we are proud of having 100 bears, uh, <laughs> but with different numbers uh, than, in, than in humans. And as well, we can't standardize our sample size so well, so they can't be all uh, exactly at the same age of females, which have not reproduced or not. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, that's always and a down. I have not eaten the last 12 hours, so that we can't control. <laughs> 
That's right. Those polar bears are just not very compliant, are they? Like you tell them what to do and they just would not follow. It's, uh, <laughs> that's, I guess that's one of the downsides of working with wildlife. Like it's really cool and interesting, but yeah, they're just not very, not very obedient in a way. <laughs> no. Challenging. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I have another question for you and that relates to Norway being a nation that is really active in PFAS research. And um, there are a lot of studies coming from Norway, um, especially on PFAS in the Arctic. And why do you, maybe you have a hint for me, why is it that Norway is putting so much money and energy into this field compared to other countries? Uh, so at the management side, nor in Norway, there's a large interest to produce knowledge about environmental fate of PFAS and other emerging compounds. Norway has been generally very active in proposing new compounds to be listed under the Stockholm Convention. The Stockholm Convention, that's a global treat, treaty under UNEP to regulate persistent organic pollutants. Uh, what comes to the research in our institute, so due to long-term monitoring programs and large sampling efforts, we have access to a lot of samples that can be used to study PFAS in the environment or to study the temporal and spatial trends of PFAS in Arctic wildlife. And also th thanks to the collaborators from from different universities in Norway, so, so there's a lot of knowledge to build, for example, uh, models how to study the mechanistic side, how PFAS can act in the body. I have one more question for you, which is a bit, um, yeah, it goes a bit further. Um, we talked about slightly depressing topics, but also want to know about a bit about your research trips. You have been in the field many times and you have taken samples from polar bears, whales and others. Um, do you have any highlights um, you want to share, like your experiences working with those animals? I imagine that being quite exciting. It is, of course, very fascinating to work with these large charismatic animals and uh, wonderful to see them very close and take samples of them. So I have been lucky to, to join this work uh, for several seasons. But I would like to thank you, my colleagues who have the main responsibility in collecting these samples. Yeah, this work is logistically very challenging and it dem demands a lot of time and resources as well as patients to collect a decent number of samples from large predators that can then be used to to have good temporal trends of PFAS. Yeah. Also collecting samples from animals that spend most of their time underwater, so you can imagine that it is quite quite challenging, but then you have to find out what, what works to to get hold of them, so it's not, not easy. <laughs> I can imagine. Do, yeah, do you have any anecdotes for me, like anything that was particularly exciting when you came close to a polar bear? Yeah, they are luckily immobilized when we handle them, so <laughs> so they are immobilized from from a helicopter and, and then they sleep about for an hour and, and then we can take samples of them and, uh, and put uh, satellite collars so that they can be tracked and... Um, and we can look at the if the, what's their their body condition if they are fat or thin and so on and yeah it's been very 
very exciting too to work in the in the field and um, fascinating work but challenging as well <laughs> i can imagine that very well for sure and i have one last question for you before we have to wrap up do you know from the top of your head how are the norwegian polar bears doing in terms of conservation are they doing okay or is there a bit of an issue uh the the population counts going on uh, approximately every 10 years so so now there is not uh, not seen any decline so it seems that the population is stable so it's uh, the this populate no polar bear population that we see in, in Svalbard so it's a common population with um within the Barents Sea uh, which which is partly in Norway and partly in, in Russia so um, but that that population is, is is stable what we know about it but there are some other polar bear populations which are declining but there's a lot of um a lot of population that there is not not enough information whether they are declining or or increasing or, or stable Right. Yeah, I was hoping we could end on a slightly positive note. That's always like a, <laughs> a nice um, outlook. But um, thank you so much, Haley. I really appreciate your time um, telling us about your work and about the situation of PFAS in the Arctic. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. This was Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. We will be back with a new science story next week. Bye for now.